Hi, everybody, and thank you so much for joining the Chess Journal Club webinar. I am Alice Gallo, an intensivist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and I'm one of the social media editors for the journal Chest. I would like to welcome the authors for the study, Prevalence and Outcomes of Previously Healthy Adults Among Patients Hospitalized with Community Onset Sepsis. They're going to be talking to us about their findings and how they, the idea to do their study came about. Dr. Ree, would you mind introducing yourself for our listeners? Yeah, hi, I'm uh, Charlie Ree. I'm an infectious disease and critical care physician uh, and an associate uh, professor at uh, Brigham Women's Hospital and, and Harvard Medical School, and uh, happy to be here. Thank you. Dr. Arashad, do you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, my name is Mohammed Al-Rawashda. I am... Um, postdoc fellow at Harvard uh, Department of Population Medicine, and I'm also an assistant professor at Jordan University of Science and Technology. I'm glad to be here with you today. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm going to start with my first question for both of you, and um, I would like to know what motivated you to, to look into this data and to do the study? Okay, I might start just talking about this. So uh, first, I would like to thank you again, personally, Alice and Melanie, and to thank uh, the Chess Journal for arranging this meeting and give us the chance to talk about our study. So as you know, sepsis is a leading cause of death, disability, and costs to the healthcare system. Uh, despite its high burden, awareness of sepsis among the general public, lay media, and policymakers have traditionally been low. However, over the past decade or so, devastating cases of sepsis in previously healthy people, including children, young adults, and celebrities have received widespread attention and helped to catalyze the state and national mandates to improve sepsis detection and care. For example, take the uh, sad and tragic case of Rory Staunton in New York State, where this boy scraped his arm during a school uh, basketball game. Uh, long story short, later he went to the ER and was sent home with a diagnosis of uh, gastric flu. A few days later, Rory died from sepsis. According to his parents, they have never heard the word sepsis, as many of the general public do. However, fortunately, their efforts led to uh, the adoption of a new mandate in the state of New York for early diagnosis and effective treatment uh, of sepsis. That is being said, although these types of cases received a lot of attention, there have been little data on what a fraction of adults who are hospitalized with sepsis actually fit this profile of being previously healthy. Numerous previous studies have uh, demonstrated that the importance of comorbidities in terms of uh, uh, developing sepsis and dying from it. But again, almost none to our knowledge have focused on, uh, have focused specifically on uh, those with no comorbidities. So we uh, undertook an analysis to better understand the prevalence of previously healthy status among patients hospitalized with sepsis and how their outcomes compare uh, with those with comorbidities. This is in an aim to help provide context for high-profile reports of sepsis-associated deaths in previously healthy patients, and also potentially help improve uh, sepsis recognition, 
the quality of care and understanding the prognosis of uh, this very important uh, population. Thank you so much. That's fantastic. Dr. Reed, do you have anything else that you'd like to add? No, Mohammed uh, summarized the background and the rationale perfectly, so that was great. I love it. And um, what 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 would you guys say is unique about your study design and why did you choose to the specific design that you did? Maybe I would just start talking about this and then hand it to Chanu. So uh, basically our study uh, um, uh, recruited like a really large amount of data in order to answer this question. So we conducted a retrospective cohort study of adults uh, admitted to 373 US hospitals between the years of 2009 and 2015. And the sample was drawn from three retrospective uh, or from three non-overlapping data sets that are collectively representative of the U.S. hospitals. Uh, and due to HEPA regulations and other restrictions, and since we cannot merge these data sets, we used meta-analyses for descriptive analysis. And we used a more complex uh, study level uh, meta-analyses for our prediction models as described in the literature. Uh, another unique thing about our study is the use of the CDC adult sepsis event criteria, which was uh, developed by Chano Ri, uh, my mentor. And I would hand it to Chano, who uh, can talk about this much better than me. Uh, thanks, Mohammed. Yeah, and uh, certainly don't want to claim um, soul credit, obviously, for, for that. Obviously, uh, the CDC adult sepsis event definition, you know, certainly the product of, um, you know, a lot of collaborations over the years with, with the academic partners and, of course, CDC. Um, but, um, you know, just to talk a little bit more about that, um, you know, that, that was a unique aspect of our study, I think, to use this method to identify sepsis in our large data sets. Um, and we did this as opposed to using administrative data or ICD-9 codes or ICD-10 codes, uh, which is a typical method for identifying sepsis retrospectively in these large data sets. And, you know, I think, um, you know, we did this because there is a large and increasing body of evidence um, demonstrating the limitations of administrative data when it comes to identifying substances. And, and that includes, uh, you know, relatively low sensitivity, at least compared to standardized medical record reviews. Uh, importantly, there is a lot of variability in diagnosis and coding practices. And those uh, diagnosis and coding practices, we know are changing over time. Uh, and uh, that, that, that applies to methods that use sepsis, um, what we call explicit sepsis diagnosis, you know, so sepsis severe, sepsis septic shock, septicemia. Uh, some studies also use what's called implicit methods, so looking for um, discharge diagnoses for infection and organ dysfunction. Um, and that increases sensitivity, but that's also limited by variable and changing thresholds for diagnosing organ dysfunction. And also, uh, you know, when you look for concurrent infection and organ dysfunction codes on discharge, there's no guarantee that they were related to each other temporarily or even certainly causally. And so uh, the CDC definition um, is based purely on uh, clinical criteria. So it's uh, agnostic to ICD codes. Uh, it was designed to mirror sepsis three criteria, uh, but really more optimized for uh, consistent application across diverse electronic health record systems. And specifically, um, it looks for uh, patients who had evidence of presumed serious infections, which 
is defined by um, the fact that the clinicians drew a blood culture, uh, regardless of whether it was positive or negative, and administered at least four consecutive days of antibiotics. Uh, fewer than four days of antibiotics are allowed if the patient um, dies or is discharged to hospice or um, uh, transferred to another hospital. And then during uh, the window, uh, uh, sort of the concurrent window looks for um, markers of organ dysfunction, things like new initiation of vasopressors, mechanical ventilation, uh, elevations in lactate, or changes in baseline um, creatinine, bilirubin, and uh, platelets. And so, you know, there have been a number of um, validation studies showing that um, the specificity, uh, it's, not, it's not perfect, but it's uh, comparable to sepsis diagnosis codes. The uh, sensitivity is um, better, and uh, it gives you more stable um, estimates, uh, you know, across hospitals and, and over time. And I think for this uh, particular study, we, we also felt that it was important to use this definition as opposed to sepsis codes, um, you know, because of the possibility that sepsis might be differentially diagnosed. Uh, in previously healthy um, versus uh, those uh, patients as opposed to those with comorbidities. Um, the last thing I'll say about the definition we use is that we focus um, specifically on community onset sepsis cases, which is defined uh, really by all the CDC criteria happening within uh, the first two days of hospital admission. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is sort of um, the majority of hospital hospitalized sepsis cases. And, uh, so, you know, we're interested in, in, in what's happening to uh, patients in the community. And maybe I'll turn it to Mohammed if you want to talk about our method for defining uh, patients with comorbidities versus those who were previously healthy. Yes, sure. Thank you, Chanu. Yes, uh, this was also another strength for our study uh, with the definition of the previously healthy group and those with comorbidities. So the story, the story starts with uh, our aim to do that and to define the two groups. So in order to define the comorbidities or uh, previously healthy status, we used ICD-9 discharge diagnosis codes. We initially considered using the standard Charlson and Alexazar methods that are widely used in the literature. However, when uh, delving more deeply into these methods, we realized that they are not necessarily the best for what we are trying to accomplish as they were designed more for mortality prediction rather than comprehensively identifying uh, chronic conditions. For example, the, for the ICD-9-based methods, which is similar to what they use also, uh, which is the method that they both used in, in, in both definitions. They are missing many important chronic comorbidities like uh, leukemia, cystic fibrosis, and congenital immunodeficiencies. On the other hand, uh, they included some diagnoses like fluid and electrolyte disorders that probably reflect more on acute rather than chronic conditions. So basically, the way these two uh, scores were designed, they don't match our intention. So therefore, we went uh, line by line down all the ICD-9 clinical modification codes in the AHRQ clinical classification software and identified major comorbidities, for example, heart failure and malignancy, like that impacts uh, patients' life uh, tremendously, and minor comorbidities such as uncomplicated hypertension, benign neoplasm, etc. So we identified these based on uh, their likely impact on patients' health. 
all these comorbidities have uh, have to be chronic and not and not acute. And we considered pregnancy as a separate category since it is a temporary condition, but is an important one with respect to sepsis risk. Uh, we then identified all the community onset sepsis patients by the CDC criteria and divided them into previously healthy who have no comorbidities uh, versus those with comorbidities. We also conducted sensitivity analysis using uh, another um, another or other like two definitions, a broader definition for the previously healthy that included not only the no comorbidities, but also included uh, the minor comorbidities or pregnancy only. And uh, in this way, we excluded those with major comorbidities. And we also used a narrower definition that included only relatively young patients without any major comorbidities. By young here, we mean less than 60 years. In addition to the crude prevalence rates and uh, clinical characteristics, we evaluated the association be uh, between the previously healthy status and the short-term mortality, adjusting for demographics, infection site, and severity of illness uh, on admission. So basically, these were unique things that we used in our uh, study uh, that we think uh, would uh put something in you like in the literature and guide future studies. I hope this answers your question. Maybe if I can, well, the last thing I'll say about the methods is quickly is just the outcome of um, uh, Mohammed mentioned short-term mortality. We define that as in-hospital death, but also discharge to hospice. And, you know, we thought that was important yeah. because, um, uh, you know, I think, you know, it's sort of intuitive, but a lot of studies really focus on in-hospital death, but, um, you know, there are a lot of patients with sepsis who are discharged to hospice. And, you know, while we're learning more about sort of that outcome in that population, you know, what we know is that most of those patients do end up dying uh, shortly afterwards. So I think if you're trying to capture short-term mortality, that's another important outcome to, to consider. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I thought you did a fantastic job um, explaining all of this also in your methods uh, on the paper. And I, I thought it was a masterful way of, like you both said, trying to take into account, one, that sepsis definition changed um, during the time that you had your data uh, collected and, and abstracted. And um, basically, the most important thing for us at that side is the clinical picture, right? So I thought it was masterfully done. Thank you. Of course. And um, okay, now about results. Tell me about the results of your paper. And I want to hear from both of you if you were surprised at all about what you found or not and why. Yes, basically, we were like a little bit surprised by a few things. Some of them, some of the, our results like went hand in hand with the literature. Some of them were surprising. I might just guide you through this like a little bit. Then I would give the chance like to channel, like, you know, to summarize everything. So uh, like around like 6.7 million adult hospitalizations were uh, screened or analyzed in this study. They were mainly from the South, medium-sized hospitals, non-teaching. Only just a small fraction, like around 5% or like 338,000 hospitalizations had community onset sepsis. Uh, may I please just ask you just to go to the first figure, please? 
Okay, so in this figure, uh, we can see a bar graph showing the prevalence of comorbidities in hospitalized patients with and without community onset sepsis. So those with community onset sepsis are on the right and those without are on the left. As you can see, the percentage of previously healthy patients in those with sepsis was very small. Actually, that was about only 2.6% compared to 6 0.2% in the other group. Also, when you look at the those with community onset sepsis, you can see that they have much more major comorbidities compared to the other group. So this was, was not that surprising knowing that uh, these have sepsis, like they have, they're more likely to have comorbidities and mainly major comorbidities. Could you please just go to the next figure, please? So here, yeah, here I would focus for now on the right side of the figure, and we can come later to the left side. So in the right side of the figure, that shows the prevalence of different comorbidities among patients with sepsis. We can see how prevalent these uh, comorbidities are. The top three that comes in that comes here were anemia, uh, hypertension without complications, and diabetes. So this lets like know how what like the amount of comorbidities in this group. Okay, can we please just go to table number one? Yeah. So and this this table shows the characteristics of patients with community onset sepsis, and here we are comparing those with comorbid conditions again with the previously healthy group. Uh, um, an interesting thing we is that the Charlson and Alexander scores were much smaller in the previously healthy group. So this tells us that our definition goes hand in hand with these definitions in the literature. Also, we can see that the previously healthy group having having aware that they were younger. So that was uh, on average nine years younger than the those with comorbidities. As for the gender distribution and race distribution, they were comparable. And by the way, in this table, you're going to see like, you know, most of these here, most of these comparisons to be significant, statistically significant. However, we will focus more on the clinically significant ones. So let's move maybe to the next page of this table. Yes. So at the top here, you can, you can see clearly that the previously healthy group has less ICU admissions. However, when we looked at the ICU length of stay and hospital length of stay, they were comparable between the two groups. Uh, looking down and into the uh, CDC organ dysfunction that was associated with their sepsis, we can see that uh, the ventilation source was much less in the previously healthy patients, but this group had a little bit slight, slightly uh, uh, higher rate of vasopressors use. If we look at the bottom, like at the infection diagnosis, and we extracted these from using ICD-9 codes, we can see that the previously healthy group having lower rates of infections, uh, such as septicemia, bacteremia, uh, pulmonary, and genitourinary infections. Can we go to the next page, please? Yeah, if we go here, like down to the bottom section for the discharge disposition, we can see uh, that the previously healthy group uh, had a slightly higher short-term mortality. So that was about 22.8% uh, 
compared to 20.8% on the left side for those with comorbidities. And by short-term mortality, again, we are defining that here as death in hospital or discharge to hospice. Uh, the, however, the uh, previously healthy group, they had lower discharge to subacute facilities, but more discharge to home. Uh, can we go to the next table, please? Next slide. Yes. So for this slide, we looked at the positive blood culture pathogen findings for patients with uh, sepsis by the comorbid conditions and previously healthy, again. And uh, both the groups showed similar profiles with regards to the pathogens and to the pathogen types. That's in the next page, please. Yeah, um, so they had similar pathogen profiles. So there was nothing interesting like when comparing these two. Uh, can we go to the third one, third table? Am I rushing through this? <laughs> okay, so uh, this Not at all, you're doing great. Thank you. So uh, in this table, we looked at the uh, predictors or the risk-adjusted multivariate model for short-term mortality in patients with sepsis. So in the top row here, you see that the previously healthy group, after controlling for everything else, like demographics, uh, severity of illness, and also the sources and types of infection, uh, after controlling for all of these, it's still persistent that the previously healthy group are at higher risk of mortality compared to the comorbidity, com to the com comorbidity group. And this was very interesting. Actually, the odds ratio here is about 1.99, uh, so they're about twice likely to, uh, uh, to die from sepsis when they get it. Uh, could you please just show the next two? Because these, yeah, these are like these are the where the variables that we controlled for. So these these are the severity of illness uh, variables. And on the last page, you can see the uh, uh, port or type of infection. Um, I just want to take you back, like to figure two, please. Could you please just go to that slide? So when we looked on what types of comorbidities that put patients at higher risk of dying from sepsis, as you can see here on the left side of this graph, the top five were failure to thrive, solid cancer, stem cell uh, transplant, chronic liver disease, and uh, hematologic uh, malignancy and dementia. So we're, these were the top five that increased the risk of dying uh, from uh, sepsis. Uh, and by the way, when we used a when we did the sensitivity analysis using other definitions, the one we talked about uh, uh, in the methods uh, with the narrower and broader definitions of the previously healthy groups, we got very similar results. Actually, when we used the broader one, that uh, bumped our or raised our uh, the prevalence of the previously healthy group in among this uh, these sepsis patients or, or patients with sepsis from 2.6 percent to 3.9 percent, but still the odds ratios for that was 1.32. So they're still at higher risk of dying from sepsis. Also, when we used the narrower one, like when we focused mainly on the younger ones, like to be previously healthy, that uh, decreased the prevalence of the previously healthy group from 2.6% to 
as far as I remember, that was one point something percent. Um, that was, yeah. So that was 1.3 percent. Yeah. And the odds ratios for that was uh, still around two. So however you look at this definition, it's still showing that the previously healthy group are at high risk of uh, mortality. Uh, that's it for me. Like I would leave it maybe to Chanu just to summarize these results. Yeah, that was a great uh, whirlwind through through a lot of different tables and figures, but but that was that was thank you. Made it easy to follow, I think. So um, I guess I would just distill it down into two two major findings. The first is that you know the, the vast majority of patients who are hospitalized with community sepsis um, have pre-existing comorbidities. Uh, but uh, previously healthy patients who do develop sepsis and are hospitalized with it uh, appear to be more likely to die compared to patients with comorbidities. And so, you know, with respect to the first finding, as Mohammed said, not, not necessarily surprising. We, we know from prior literature that, you know, generally speaking, sepsis is, is a primarily disease of the elderly and those with comorbidities. Uh, I, I still think, um, you know, our findings, I hope, are, are helpful in sort of um, you know, you know, trying to quantify, you know, the burden of sepsis in this previously healthy population. And I also want to put those numbers in the context of sort of over, the overall high incidence of sepsis. So um, even if we say less than 3% of sepsis, um, you know, occurs in previously healthy adults, uh, let's consider that uh, the CDC estimates that about 1.7 million adults are hospitalized annually in the, in the U.S. And this is pre-COVID times, but this is important. Uh, and that would translate then into you know, over 40,000 previously healthy adults um, being hospitalized with sepsis and, you know, around 10,000 deaths per year. So that's obviously quite a lot when you look at it that way. And also when you consider um, that um, there's a lot of work showing that, um, prior work showing that previously healthy adults um, or, or, or children for that matter who develop sepsis, uh, even if they survive, they go on to have, um, you know, impaired quality of life, um, more healthy utilization. So overall burden is, is actually quite substantial. Um, you know, with respect to the second finding about the higher uh, crude and risk-adjusted mortality in the previously healthy uh, patients, uh, obviously, I think this was sort of the, the, no, the more novel and, and surprising, at least, um, finding, uh, because it just goes against, I think, what we would um, probably guess to begin with. Uh, well, let's talk more about that in a second, but I, I want to also uh, caveat and, and um you know, just make sure that folks don't misinterpret our study. We're not saying that um, healthy people in general are more likely to, to die from sepsis, right? Because our study focused um, on patients who were hospitalized with sepsis and not uh, looking at the general uh, healthy outpatient population. You know, clearly healthy patients overall are less likely to develop sepsis uh, and die sort of when all comers. Um, and so I think that's an important um, uh, thing to consider with our findings. To me, to me, the way the way I I had it in my head, and please correct me if I'm wrong, since I have both of you here, was if someone who tells me like I had nothing before and I had a scratch in my arm, based on your study, every what it's going to do for me is that I'm going to pay more attention to to those patients because I know they have a high chance of dying, and perhaps is because as a clinician before I was like kind of like half assured, they're like, oh, they're healthy, they're gonna do well, as opposed to someone who comes with uh, cancer being treated or receiving therapy or receiving um, immune therapy, then I'm already like kind of paying a little extra attention because I know 
they are at higher risk of having septic shock from from a gram negative bug, for example. So I think to me, what for me, what your study did was put an extra level of attention to people who are considered previously healthy, because it might be it might be that um, their sepsis is so severe and and uh, evolving so quickly that they needed a hospitalization when majority of healthy people who have an infection don't need to come to the hospital. So. Yeah, I think that's really one of the important um, you know takeaways and and, and uh, implications of the study that. Um, you know, that, that really is to highlight the clinicians and the public that sepsis you know, can affect anyone, uh, even healthy individuals, and really emphasize the importance of, um, you know, having this on your differential and treating it aggressively, um, you know, no matter sort of the underlying substrate. Uh, but maybe this is a good segue to talk, um, you know, I think about, uh, you know, some, some of the reasons why um, you hinted at some of them uh, there in terms of sort of how uh, providers care for these patients. Why, why we might have found that previously healthy patients, you know, have um, a higher risk of death when they do develop sepsis. Uh, Muhammad, you want to you want to start off with some of the theories that we had in the paper? Oh, you're on mute. Sure. Yeah, I can't agree with you more. And um, yes, uh, I agree. Like you know, these this population, we don't want to scare the public out there. But yeah, because our study. Uh, findings, they're more generalizable to those who are in hospitals. That's the first thing. Second thing is that this group of previously healthy, they are less likely to get sepsis, but once they get it, yeah, they might have worse outcomes compared to the comorbid ones. So I agree with you like on, on, on that part. So the finding that previously healthy patients with sepsis being uh, at higher risk of short-term mortality was a surprising one, actually, and begs the question of why that might be the case. In our paper, we discussed a few possibilities. Uh, first, uh, the uh, first one that we discussed, that the previously healthy patients might wait longer to seek hospital treatment for sepsis and therefore might present with a greater severity of illness whereas patients with comorbidities may be more closely followed by healthcare providers or just are more used to seeking medical uh, attention in general. So in our study, this is supported by the slightly higher rate of vasopressor use on admission in the previously healthy group. This is indicative of sepsis shock, which is the most severe manifestation of sepsis. So uh, we interpret that as that they waited longer in order to come to the hospital. Uh, but on the other hand, the previously healthy group tended to have overall lower rates of organ dysfunction on admission, as we saw in the previously in the tables. So this raises the possibility that worse outcomes might be mediated by differences in how these patients are treated. For example, uh, sepsis diagnosis and treatment may be delayed in previously healthy patients if clinicians presume that younger and healthier patients are less likely to have sepsis or if clinicians uh, are less aggressive about their care since they presume they have uh, a better prognosis. We have certainly seen anecdotal examples of this uh, very famously and tragically with the case of Rory Stanton in New York that we discussed earlier. 
where he was sent home from the ED with a diagnosis of viral gastroenteritis, when in fact he had sepsis from uh, streptococcal infection. Another possible interpretation is that worse outcomes might occur if uh, healthy patients tend to have more unusual infections uh, or infections without a clear source. Uh, another well-publicized and tragic example of this case is the case of uh, Gabby Galbo, a five-year-old girl who died from sepsis after developing Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Uh, that was initially misdiagnosed as tonsillitis or viral infection. Uh, in our cohort, uh, there was a higher rate of sepsis without a clear infectious diagnosis or discharge. Uh, although rates of bacteremia and the distribution of pathogens was similar in the uh, healthy versus comorbidity groups, as we, as we discussed earlier uh, in here. So I will leave it to Chanu to talk about another possibility that comes from maybe the use of the adult sepsis criteria. So Chanu. That's great. Those are great uh, potential you know, clinical explanations. And one is also, just thinking about um, you know the methodology and how we identified our patients with sepsis, I talked a lot about you know what I think are the strengths and the advantages of the CDC definition. But because it does rely on clinical um, um, markers of um, you know treated infection, um, you have to consider um, you know could that uh, be affecting the results somehow? And one possibility is that if providers uh, just tend to have a lower threshold to be concerned about possible sepsis in patients with comorbidities and they're more likely to order blood cultures and give antibiotics, which then uh, triggers the CDC criteria. Um, and if that happens for less severely ill patients compared to uh, previously healthy ones, uh, that, that could potentially lower the um, you know, parent uh, sepsis mortality rate for patients who have uh, comorbidities. Uh, so that's, that's one thing um, to consider. Um, uh, you know, but I, I think the clinical explanations that Mohammed uh, put forth are, are really important ones. I guess ultimately, I would say, you know, uh, I think our, our it's certainly a limitation of our study that, that we have limited insight into the mechanisms, you know, by which the previously healthy patients who, who presented to the hospital with sepsis, you know, had worse outcomes. You know, I think, uh, I still think it's an important finding. I think in some ways our study is a hypothesis generating. Um, you know, I think we would both advocate strongly for, for all these potential explanations to be you know, thoroughly uh, investigating using, uh, you know, very rigorous uh, uh, studies. Oh, absolutely. I do have a very specific question about one comorbidity that caught my eye when I was reading. Is that okay if I ask? Like, it's very specific. Yes. I was very sure. surprised about the, um, about the arrhythmias and conduction disorders being, um, as, as like a, a, a worse outcome if you came in with community sepsis. I'm wondering if, it, if it's a consequence of severe sepsis and septic shock instead of like the presentation, you know? Like I, I, find, it hard, I find it hard to wrap my head around, okay, someone who has underlying atrial fibrillation does worse with sepsis as opposed to someone who developed um, atrial fibrillation from sepsis. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I can I can take a stab at that. I, I, I totally hear what you're saying. I guess I would say, um, yeah, so, so, you know, we, we did our best when we looked at the uh, comorbidities line by line to um, sort of distinguish ones that were, you know, clearly acute um, versus uh, ones that sort of indicative chronic 
And I, I'd have to look at the precise codes, you know, for specific for these arrhythmias. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I mean, A, there's some possible uh, possibility for a misclassification. So it's possible that some of them um, you know, actually were, you know, acute conditions. And just like you said, yeah, we know that if you have sepsis and you develop in AFib or, you know, certainly ventricular arrhythmias and things like that, yeah, it's obviously you're going to, you're going to, you know, that's going to be, um, you know, a poor sign. But, you know, I can certainly also buy, you know, patients who have underlying, you know, AFib or other arrhythmias. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think clearly, you know, that that is also associated with, um, you know, other other uh, sort of, um, you know, uh, comorbidities and conditions that would predispose to, to this. So I, my guess is probably a little bit of both, you know, for that particular comorbidity. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. It's just like when I was reading it, caught my attention, I'm like, huh, is this before or after they developed yeah. sepsis? You know, it was, it just caught my eye. I think the other ones, the other ones, the other top ones really made a lot of sense to us, like failure to yeah. throw and, and the cancers. Yeah. And oh, like absolutely. That. Absolutely. I, again, it, for, all of them make sense to me. It was just the arrhythmias. I was like, huh, yeah, okay. Like CKD makes complete sense. Uh, failure to thrive for me actually made complete sense because this person is probably ill for a while. Exactly. Having failure to thrive for whatever reason. So baseline is already chronically ill, right? So it made perfect mm -hmm. sense to me. It was just the, the arrhythmia. And another explanation that I also had when I was reading your paper was maybe maybe um, these patients with underlying arrhythmias just can't um, generate enough cardiac output and cardiac index when they are sick because of the arrhythmia. But then again, that was me just going down a rabbit hole of, of arrhythmias and sepsis. So not, <laughs> not mm -hmm. the point. Um, so tell me, uh, tell me, is your is your clinical practice going to change in any way, shape, or form based on your results? Mm, maybe a little, yeah. From methodological uh, perspective, although we use like large data, but it's still like data extracted from electronic medical records, it still has its own flows. Uh, so I'm not sure like that we can move it like actually to practice. But again, as China said, this is more like of a hypothesis generating for a more rigorous studies, I think, in the future, rather than taking this mainly into practice right now. Yeah, totally agree. And, and I, I uh, want to be cautious, you know, about the, about sort of the potential implications. But I think I, the ID provider in me and the antibiotic steward, you know, you know, is worried about sort of taking this to the other extreme saying, well, hey, any, any, anyone who comes in the ED, you know, with anything must get, um, you know, broad spectrum antibiotics and treated for sepsis. And then I think that can open us up to, to another, you know, world of problems. And that's, you know, constantly a struggle, I think, for all of us, you know, who practice medicine and, and certainly focus on sepsis is that balance between, um, you know, uh, early recognition and appropriate treatment, you know, versus, um, you know, over-treating, um, and, you know, I think that's going to be constantly, constantly be a challenge for us. And so I guess I would uh, just kind of say again that um, maybe not necessarily this changing my immediate clinical practice, but I think, you know, for sure, again, highlighting to, you know, clinicians and the public, again, that stuff just can, can affect anyone, you know, even if it's, uh, if you're previously healthy. And again, just, I don't think any of us can argue with the general tenets that, you know, early sepsis recognition and treatment, you know, for all patients uh, is important, even while understanding, you know, in, in practice, that can be often uh, very challenging. Absolutely. For me, what's going to be is I am going to use this particular figure that we have showing now more in my, in my head for 
to talk to families and patients about prognosis, to be honest with you. And, um, and like I said before, for me, like younger patients who come in pre previously healthy, like, like examples you gave before, someone who had a scratch in school, a runner who was running and, and bumped into something and now has a new bruise or something like that, a new scratch, I'm going to pay probably extra attention to these people more than I used to before in the first 24 hours, at least, just to make sure that, that I'm on top of them, top of like um, their, their care. And um, last thoughts from both of you um, on your on your paper and, and what you like to see moving forward in the community sepsis world. Mom, any final thoughts? So my initial thoughts was just to uh, design a more regressive studies, like for a future, like you know, program of research, yeah, with uh, more. Uh, rigorous uh, designs, uh, such as, for example, like um, uh, cohort study where we just collect the data by ourselves, like not extracted, like from the medical records, or for example, like you know RCTs, which is I think um, I was trying to wrap my hand around this, yeah, but it needs more thought, yeah. Uh, Chanu, do you have any ideas? No, exactly. Just again, I think I think I, I hope this will stimulate um, you know additional investigation. Um, you know, while also again uh, emphasizing that message that um, you know sepsis you know is a huge problem and affects you know those of us who are you know young, old, you know previously healthy, you know those with comorbidities, and uh, you know I I would say that's really the takeaway message for me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, on behalf of Chess Journal, I really appreciate your time, and I'm so thankful you came and talked to us about your paper. I thought your paper was fascinating. I thought your methods were very well done, and I learned a lot from both of you. So on behalf of Chess Journal and the American College of Chess Physicians, I want to thank you both for coming today, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you, Alice. Yeah, our pleasure. Thank you for having us.